Good morning, good evening, whichever it may be as you listen to this and gather for discussion. It's such an honor uh, to get to teach you about the miracles of Jesus and finding hope in the signs and the wonders that he performed. As we dive in this morning, I first want to open us in a word of prayer, and then we're going to go straight to Luke chapter 5 to talk about the miraculous catch. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we pause now as we come to your word, not just longing to learn, but longing to eat. We know that the deeper this goes down in us, the more it will produce in our lives. And so we pray not just for ears to hear and for eyes to see, but for a heart that's fed and then follows. Lord Jesus, show us your great mercy and your great power. We ask this in your name. Amen. If you would please, if you have a Bible, feel free to open it to Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 the story of the miraculous catch. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats, left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore They left everything and they followed him. Thanks be to God for his word. Now, at this point in Jesus's ministry, uh, it was becoming more and more common that very large crowds would gather to hear him teach. Uh, Part of this is because in this previous chapter, uh, Jesus had in a synagogue after teaching, exercised a demon from a possessed man. And many saw it, and the word of God tells us, began to report throughout the region about what had happened. Following that, uh, Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, which also received, understandably, a lot of attention and began to spread throughout the region. And so coming up to this point, we're presented that one day as he's standing on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, there's a large crowd And they gather to hear what he has to say. What an opportunity for ministry. There's probably dozens, maybe even hundreds of curious followers wanting to hear what he has to say. And it wasn't uncommon. The Sea of Galilee is full of different inlets where if you got out into the water and spoke into it, it created kind of an amphitheater. 
it'd be easier to hear his voice. And so it wasn't uncommon that Jesus, not because he was so crowded that he had to just get in the water to get away, but so that the crowds could hear him on the shore, he would get into the boat, into the water, and begin to teach. But what I want you to see in this passage is that the focus is not on the mass of the crowd. And it's also not on his teaching. We don't receive a single word of what he actually taught that great crowd. Three of the first four verses in this passage, they focus on the fishing boats. And what we're told is there's two boats with fishermen beside them. And they're cleaning their nets and they have had a disappointing all-nighter. Fishermen who caught no fish. And so Jesus, he asked to borrow one of the boats. And he carefully chooses Simon's. And he speaks directly to him. Now, that, that's curious simply because there's the other two of the famous three, the three closest disciples are there, James and John. But he singles out Simon's boat. And here's why. Right now, the real miracle that's happening is not actually a catch of large amounts of fish. That's a means to a greater end. You see, what's happening is Jesus is catching Simon. The greatest miracle, perhaps, that Jesus performs is actually the conquering of the human heart. Because for the human heart to be conquered, it's going to require divine intervention. It's going to require heavenly power to do so. And so in this passage, when we look at this, we, we see that it's about more than Peter just being frustrated from returning from a night's work of no fish. Jesus is catching him. And so how does he catch him? And subsequently, we might answer the same question for us. How does he catch us? And so for a moment, what I need us to do is to actually pay closer attention to the dialogue amidst the details of the miracle that happens. Because we'll see this back and forth between what Jesus says and how Peter responds that helps us see what it looks like when Jesus catches someone. And this is what it's going to look like. Okay, first, Jesus introduces Simon to the futility of self-sufficiency. Okay, Simon will be confounded. Next, Jesus introduces him to the reality of his power. Okay, Simon confesses. And then lastly, Jesus introduces him to a new way of life. And that's when Simon is called. So first confoundment. He introduces Simon to the futility of self-sufficiency. Look again at the passage in Luke chapter 5. It says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little farther from the shore. And then he sat down and he taught people from the boat. But when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. 
There's this beautiful back and forth. Jesus says, put out into deep water. Let down your nets for a catch. And Peter says, we've worked hard all night, but if you say so. And so Jesus is actually in this moment creating a situation in Peter's life that challenges him. And especially as it is uh, with regards to his perceived area of strength. He's a fisherman. And here's why. Our perceived strengths, our areas of expertise, uh, our sources of self-confidence, the things about ourselves and the areas of life where we might receive praise or adoration and feel like we've got things figured out. It's these areas where Jesus will call us to go out into the deep. And he will frustrate us there. Often these are places where we have achieved at least a measure of worldly success because these perceived strengths become areas for spiritual strongholds. These are the places where we're no longer poor in spirit. These are the places where we don't necessarily feel a desperate need for divine intervention or for heavenly help. It's where we feel no need of God and we forget that apart from him, we can really do nothing. And so Jesus is frustrating Peter's place of expertise, his perceived earthly calling. He's a fisherman by trade and he's messing with his competence. He's calling into question Simon's power. You didn't catch anything last night. Put down the nets for a catch. And when our... uh, our self-sufficiency gets challenged, uh, we might just be on the verge of something miraculous taking place in our lives. Uh, To experience the true power of Jesus Christ, we first have to get out of the way. So Simon, or insert your name, insert my name, we have to get out of the way. This is foundational to the call of Jesus on a person's life. This is the first step to being caught. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids that he first must come and die. The Apostle Paul uh, in several places says things like this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, Whoever would save his life, these are the words of Jesus, also in Luke's gospel in different places. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then our good friend, former pastor Tim Tinsley, said this in a sermon in Winter Grace just a couple years ago, and it stuck with me. He said, self-sufficiency is spiritual suicide. And so we get, we get put into these places of frustration, which often... Um, are the very places that we would feel like maybe we're okay. And we wonder why we can't seem to do what it is that we need to do. We can't just pull up our own bootstraps. We can't just uh, seemingly have a peace within our own souls that we figured it out and we've made it and we've arrived. 
in the upending of those places. Someone who considered themselves a great father, but they have sons or daughters that are disobedient, rebellious, falling away. A businessman who has achieved great wealth and great success, notoriety, and then it takes a pandemic to bring it all to dust, all to despair. Someone who exercises regularly, this is part of the story of my life, who's in great physical condition and then finds out way too soon that they have an autoimmune disease that's zapping their strength and their energy. It's a severe mercy when Jesus calls us into the deep to frustrate our strongholds. It's a gift because we have to get out of the way. There's only room for one in the end of our hearts. He must enter in, which means we must die to self. We must be crucified with him. We must get out of the way. And when we finally wave the white flag of surrender, we might be just on the approach of getting caught. But we have to reach that point. Um, I took up fly fishing by virtue of marriage. I married into it. My in-laws have been fly fishermen for decades. And so when I was dating Allison uh, and I realized that they had a fishing cabin on the warm river in Idaho, uh, that I was going to have to learn how to do this thing. And so a couple of years I went up on family trips and uh, realized how incredible and frustrating fly fishing can be. But I knew that I was, I was stuck uh, during engagement when my father-in-law placed waders and boots and a fly rod on the dining table in the fishing cabin with a note that said, welcome to the family. Now, I'm someone who typically can pick things up pretty easily. Uh, I would consider myself uh, uh, coordinated. I would consider myself competent. Uh, if I put my mind to something, I have the work ethic to make it happen. But for everyone who's listening to this and is, goes fly fishing, you know there are things that are completely out of your control, even with everything else that is in your control, that's still difficult to do. And so it's not uncommon that this novice angler will get out on the water um, and I'll admire the beautiful scenery, but even amidst the beautiful scenery, I'll end up with a tangled mess in my line. I'll come to the end of myself. And because I am the way I am, I'll get really frustrated about it. And at that point, I really have two options. And you can already tell what those two options probably are. Option one, and I want you to try to guess which one it is I most often naturally choose. Option one is that I sit there with that tangled mess of line. And I look down at my lanyard and I get my doctor slick out and I start to do open heart surgery to try and untangle the mess. Seven, eight, 15, 20 minutes later, I'm no better off than I was when the mess began. And it's only at that point when I finally reach the end of myself that I do the second option, which really is what I needed to do in the first place, is to cry out for my father-in-law. He is the best angler I have ever been around. He's like a sniper with a fishing line. 
Every time he casts, it goes the exact distance into the exact spot that he wants it to go. He ties his own flies. And not only that, he's a cardiologist. So he is used to doing very delicate procedures in very small places. And so after 30 minutes of frustration, my pride finally dies. My self-sufficiency goes away and I cry out. And he comes wading across the river. And within a minute, I'm brand new. It begs the question, what took me so long? Well, I had to come to the end of myself before I was willing to cry out for someone who had the power to undo what need be undone and to do what need be done. And that's basically what's happening here. Pride is being broken. Self-sufficiency is being exposed. Simon has to get out of the way. You and I have to get out of the way and we have to cry out for help. Okay, And we call that confession. It's what follows the end of self-sufficiency and it's the second step of being caught by Jesus. He introduces him to the reality of his power. Look again at the passage. And this again is Peter's response. Simon Peter's response to the great catch. When Simon Peter saw this, verse 8, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Peter, his response, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. This is Simon's initial response to a miraculous catch of fish. A fisherman seeing more fish in one catch than he has ever seen caught in his life. I find this fascinating. It's such an interesting response. Two, two boatloads of fish from one cast. Okay, and let me say what his response to Jesus' power isn't. He doesn't say, wow, what a catch! It's not like he responds with a sense of shallow enthusiasm or some form of head nodding to Jesus' power. He doesn't respond with, can you do that again? As if he's sign seeking, which we know in God's word, the crowds were commonly only following him to see more and more signs. As if the experience of divine power being uh, seen and noticed was the epicenter of what Jesus was coming to do. Jesus, uh, Peter doesn't respond and say, can you do that again? Which is a form of skepticism. Kind of like, I saw you do it once, but can you do it twice? Was that just a lucky try? Was that just a, a, a temporary suspension of the laws of nature? All those fish we left behind from the night before, you just seemed to find at the beginning of the day. And that is how some people respond to the power of Jesus. They get skeptical about it. And he also doesn't say this. Is this some kind of trick where there's an, an air or a spirit of cynicism that's coming out in his voice? And we have to be careful about reading too much emotion into the words that we see come from someone's mouth in Scripture. But sometimes the narrative gives more of a tell. And it's 
obvious that Peter didn't respond with shallow enthusiasm. He doesn't respond with sign seeking. He doesn't respond with skepticism. He doesn't respond with cynicism to the power of Jesus. What he responds with is a heightened awareness of his littleness, of his powerlessness, of his sinfulness. He has come into the presence of something so astonishing that it destroys his sense of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And he cries out to someone greater than himself. Earlier on, Peter calls him master. And it's really more of a, a word for teacher because he's teaching people from the boat who are sitting on the beach. But not in this instance. It's curios. There's something that has just happened that has made Peter feel so small and has made his eyes open to how incredibly great Jesus is. And he says, Lord, I am a sinful man. You see, to be caught, Simon has to encounter his powerlessness. But it's not just that. That's, not, that's one side of confession. The other side of the coin of confession is that he has to encounter a power that is astonishing. And that's actually the word that's used here. And it's used elsewhere in Mark. And it's, it's less about being surprised and it's more a fearful wonder. A, a sincere, oh my God. Because divine intervention and heavenly power have been encountered. It's kind of like gravity. You don't just stand in awe of it. You don't just wonder at its unseen but real power. It actually takes hold of you. It's not just about witnessing something. It's about that thing taking hold of you. It's a power that sustains your very life. And that's what confession is intended to be. To be caught is to come to the end of your own sufficiency, confoundment, while at the same time, simultaneously having your eyes opened, astonished to the power and the beauty of Jesus Christ. That's confession. To be caught is to be confounded into confession. John Calvin said this, Christ sinks his own people to the grave, that afterwards he might raise them to life. Uh, there's a very powerful hymn from uh, the depths of woe, I cry to thee. And I just briefly want to read the first two lines from each of the five verses. Because it, it speaks to this process of uh, being caught through confoundment in confession. Uh, verse 1 says this, From the depths of woe I cry to thee in trial and tribulation. Bend down thy gracious ear to me, Lord, hear my supplication. And then verse 2, thy love and grace alone avail to blot out my transgression. The best and holiest deeds must fail to break sin's dread oppression. Verse 3, therefore my hope is in the Lord and not in my own merit. It rests upon his faithful word to them of contrite spirit. Verse 4, and though it tarry through the night until the morning waken, my heart shall never doubt his might, nor count itself forsaken. And verse 5, though great our sins, 
Yet greater still is God's abundant favor. His hand of mercy never will abandon us nor waver. To be caught is to be confounded into confession. A confession of the insufficiency of self and the realization of the outstanding miraculous power of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the path to the fullness of life. And where does it leave Simon? Is he paralyzed? Is he shattered? Is he broken into pieces? Not really. Where it leaves Simon is it actually leaves him in a state where he's prepared for the final step of being caught by Jesus, which is to move from confoundment to confession to calling. He's called to fish for men. He's introducing him to a new way of life. Look at verse 10 with me. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And so they pulled their boats up on shore and they left everything and they followed him. Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Okay? The, the death of self is not opening a pathway to fear. The death of self is opening a pathway to freedom and purpose and fullness of life. And so do not fear begins Jesus' call here. Preparation for the kingdom of God out there in the world begins with the conquering of the kingdom of our hearts. Okay? And what's amazing here is that when we're rid of self-sufficiency, we finally can be filled with him and we finally can be used by him. And that's why Jesus in his, what sometimes feels like severe mercy, will take us out into the places of perceived power and will frustrate us. He'll gloriously frustrate us. T to say it differently, he will overpower us by underpowering us. And why does he do that? Because the ultimate goal of being caught is becoming a catcher. Okay? And he's, he's conquering your kingdom before he calls you to go out and conquer in his. The kingdom of the heart is where he miraculously begins. Because he wants us to become fisher of men. And so it's no uh, curious thing that at the end of this passage, he's going to call Simon to do what he's doing. Don't fish for fish, fish for men. And that's what happens to us too. Okay, we get called to walk others through this exact same uh, Simon-esque process. And this is where we'll close today. Okay, this is basically what he says. This is how you go fishing for men. This is how you go fishing. Okay, first, introduce them to the futility of self-sufficiency. Confoundment. Um, I have found this to be 50% of my pastoral work. It's being present with someone long enough to see their strength fail them. 
so that when their strength fails them, you can be there. When their self is dying, you can introduce them to the one who died himself so that they might be rescued from the depths of despair. That's why scripture says something like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Out of our poverty, through him, we become rich. And so what you have to do is you have to wait for the fishless night in someone's life and be present enough to be available at that moment to start the catch. So secondly, at that point, you introduce them to the reality of his power. There's a confession that must take place. Okay, and yes, that is the, the abundance of our sin and our powerlessness, but on the other side of the coin, it's astonishment at his great power. But they're not quite completely caught until they become fishers of men, which is you introduce them to a new way of life. It's calling. Fear not. Follow him with me. Let's leave our nets. Let's give him our all. Let's go fishing. There are other fish to catch in those deep waters. And so there's this beautiful pattern that when Jesus catches Simon and he catches us, we're confounded, we're perplexed. We confess and we're astonished. And then we're called to this fullness, this new way of life. My question for you today is where are you in this process of being caught? Is it confoundment? Have you not yet met your end? Perhaps self-reliance is more of a way of life. In our culture, this certainly is one of the um, acceptable idols. But like we saw earlier, self-sufficiency is spiritual suicide. You know, it will be a wonderful gift when whatever it is that stands under your feet falls through when that false floor fails it will become the first step to freedom and so you might still be in a period where you need to be confounded perplexed bewildered maybe it's confession perhaps you have a tendency to minimize your sin And if you have little or no sin, N-O, sin, then you will have little or no Savior, N-O, Savior. But if you know your sin, K-N-O-W, then you will know your need for a Savior, K-N-O-W. And so many of us will minimize our sin, and so we never really experience the majesty of the Savior. But then on the other side, some of us are so overwhelmed with our sin, we've only seen the, the top side of the coin of confession. And so we feel sunk and in despair. We feel paralyzed by our sin. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin on your behalf so that you might be made right. You might become the righteousness of God in him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
you need to be astonished, not just convicted. And so turn your eyes toward Jesus would be the cry. Perhaps calling is your issue. You know, I often will hear someone say, I'm bored in my faith. And what I will feel in my heart and think in my mind is, that's because your faith is boring. You've never embraced the call to become a fisher of men. Your faith has been self-terminating. And so like a pregnant woman nearing childbirth, you, you groan inwardly. Because to be confounded and to be confessional and to be astonished, it begs itself to get out. The kingdom of God conquering in your heart is never where it was intended to end. It was meant to be the kingdom of God taking over every single corner of the earth until his glory fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's your calling. And how do you do it? You go fishing for men. If you feel weak, bored, stagnant, complacent in your faith, it might be that you are not leaving your nets to follow him. Praise be to God that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not lefted, confounded. We are not lefted, crushed under our sin, but we are astonished. What a great Savior who now employs us to take part in his miraculous work of conquering the hearts of men. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious calling. Confound us. Conquer our hearts. And call us. That miraculous catch of fish was a means to the end of grabbing the hearts of Peter and the other disciples who witnessed it. Would you do the same in us? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.